the University of Michigan football stadium is one of the most awesome stadiums around. It seats 110,000 fans. And the best part about it is there's no second or third decks. It's all just one big bowl out of the earth, basically. You can behold 110,000 people just by going like this with your head once. You can see it all. 110,000 people. That's enough space in one stadium for every man, woman, and child in Greenwich, plus 50,000 more people. It's awesome. I remember my first time going to a Michigan game there. I was in the ninth grade. We drove across the state from where I was growing up, and we watched a Michigan versus Notre Dame game. And I was seated somewhere near the end zone, and I remember in the first quarter, right in front of me, the quarterback threw the ball, and a wide receiver caught it in the end zone, and 110,000 people leapt to their feet and praised. And I look back on that, and I marvel because... Everybody knew just what to do. Think about this with me. It's not like we all got into the stadium, sat down, and then had a little tutorial where somebody got on the speaker and said, okay, everybody, if the one guy throws the ball to the other guy in this little box at the end, three steps. Step one, jump out of your seat. Step two, throw your hands in the air. And step three, make a joyful noise. No, we all just knew what to do. Why is that? Could it be that we were created to praise? When we behold something praiseworthy, that there's something in us that will last forever because we were created to praise that which is praiseworthy. When we read Psalm 100, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth serve or worship the Lord with gladness, come into his presence with singing. This is not a tutorial. This is not step one, step two, step three. This is simply a reminder to be who we were created to be, to praise, to say, wow. When we behold something beautiful, when we behold something good, when we behold something praiseworthy, God says, do what you were created to do, praise. Joy, gladness, singing. The first line of the psalm, make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. It's probably borrowed language from the ancient world. When a king would come into your town, there would probably be town criers and some trumpeters, and they would proclaim to all the people in the village that the king is coming, and they would say, make a joyful noise to the king, all the nation. And do you see what the psalmist is doing here? He's extending that call, that summoning, to all the earth, make a joyful noise to the king of the whole earth, all of you who live here. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. He is praiseworthy and he is coming into our presence. I love this line, especially this time of year. When I see all the earth, when I see all creation praising God, if colors were loud or soft, what we've seen the last couple of weeks would be boisterously loud. All of creation, all these beautiful colors of fall, they are making a joyful noise to the Lord. And we, when we gather in this place, when we sing praises to God, we're simply joining in 
with what creation is already doing. Creation knows that God is our king and our creator, and creation simply expresses the way God designed creation to express. When we do that here in the sanctuary, when we praise, we're just being who he created us to be, just like the beauty of these trees. They're just being what they were created to be, and they praise. Joy, gladness, singing, when we come into his presence. I don't know if you're like me, but when I read scripture, when I read particular verses or chapters, I often have in my mind, I have a soundtrack playing, a song. With, depending on what the verse is, I hear music. And Psalm 100 brings to mind a lot of different songs, but the one that comes when I think about this line, make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth, I actually think of the Louis Armstrong song, What a Wonderful World. You know this one, don't you? I see trees of green, join me now, red roses too, I see them bloom for me and you, and I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I learned that at the first service, everybody wanted to go up on that. What a wonderful world it is that we live in. Psalm 100 has us view the world and see its wonder. The Louis Armstrong song focuses a little bit on the world itself, whereas Psalm 100 focuses on the creator of the world. In either case, we say there's wonder here, there's awe here, there's things to say wow about, there is praise. How much better is God than even a touchdown pass in an end zone. And when we behold who he is and what he's done for us, this is our natural response, joy, gladness, singing. So why do we sometimes come into worship with hearts that are the alternative of that? Maybe with some cynicism, maybe with some begrudging, you know, holding back. I grew up in a church environment where I think, honestly, we took ourselves a little too seriously. And I remember I used to go to church sometimes with my cousins, and they went to one of these churches where there was no singing. Very serious. It was almost like they translated Psalm 100, serve the Lord with seriousness. <laughs> Come into his presence with silence. Do they even know that Psalm 100 exists? And why do some of us, it's easy to pick on my cousin's church when I was growing up, but some of us come into worship this way. But look, let's look closer. You know, you really have to learn Hebrew to really appreciate this psalm. There's so much going on in the Hebrew, or in the Hebrew words of this psalm. It's almost worth learning the whole language just to read this one psalm. As Eugene Peterson used to say, there's a picture in that word. And there's a picture in, in the word here at the end of verse 2 where it says, come into his presence with singing. If you look at the Hebrew right there, it's very interesting. What we translate as come into his presence actually literally means in the Hebrew, come to his face. And fascinatingly, it's plural. So it says, come to his faces. If you're looking for the Trinity in the Old Testament, here's an example of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. When we come into worship, we're coming face to faces with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, and Sustainer. That's what worship is all about, coming face to face. Our hearts are glad when we are face to face. Why? You were here two Sundays ago, 
when Gina Choi preached that masterful sermon. That's really all she did for us. She brought us face to face with Jesus. Her sermon concluded with Jesus, who was dying in our place, turning to us, looking us in the face and saying, do you remember, I did it for you. That's what Gina did in that sermon. She brought us face to face with our Savior. That's true worship. That's what happens when we come here. And that's why our hearts are glad, because we're coming face to face with the one who saved us, who died for us, and who says, I did it for you. This should make us glad. This should make us praise as a natural response. Some of us come in with maybe too much reverence. You, know, you ever heard the definition of Puritanism? The haunting suspicion that someone somewhere is having a good time. <laughs> I grew up with a little bit of that. If it's true that we're coming face to face with our king when we come to worship, our hearts should leap we ought to be glad and joyful and express with praise. We know how to do it at a football game. Let's learn how to do it when we come face to face with God. We're glad. And why precisely are we glad? I love the way the psalmist, where he takes us in verse 3. You see, in the six days between Sundays, we forget often the most basic, most important truth of our lives. And it reminds us here in verse 3. No, no, remember, no. What? That the Lord is God. We forget in six days. We, we begin to believe the myth that we are our own gods. So when we come face to face with God in His sanctuary, we remember, we know that the Lord, He is God. It is He who made us. And we are his. We are his people. It's just like an exclamation point. Let me just double down on this argument. I feel like the psalmist is saying, the Lord is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people, the sheep of his pasture. This simple reality ought to make us glad because it's exhausting out there trying to be our own gods, isn't it? So when we come back into the sanctuary, know that the Lord is God. I'm glad about that. Because it's hard out there being my own God, thinking I'm in control of all things. Now, I want to show you something else in the Hebrew, and stick with me on this. It's going to get slightly academic for a minute, but I want to show you something. Look in verse 3, where it says, It is he who made us, and we are his. Maybe you grow up with the NIV or with another translation, and that verse says, It is he who made us, and not we ourselves. I don't know if any of you remember learning Psalm 100 in a different translation pretty much if you took five six different translations you'd have um three you know two okay let me say that again it usually goes every other one one translation says we are his one translation says not we ourselves there, what's happening in the hebrew is there's a double entendre there's a word that can either be translated as his or not i know it's weird but I think the psalmist did that intentionally because what he's saying there is if, we're, if he's God, we are not. And if we're not God, we are his because if he's God, he made us. You see what the psalmist is showing us here? This is why it's so gladdening and this is why it makes us so happy when we come into his presence because we remember 
that he's God and we're not. And since we're not, we belong to him. It's so tiring. It's so worrisome out there when we forget. We, we say, I'm in control of all the things in my life, you see. And this goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 in the garden, the original temptation where the serpent presented the temptation to Adam and Eve, and it basically went along these lines. Hey, Adam and Eve, God is in control. He said you can't eat from this tree, but wouldn't you rather be like God? Wouldn't you rather be in control, calling the shots? And Adam and Eve took the bait, and they decided to be like God. They decided to be in control of this particular choice. And basically all of human history from that point on has been human beings trying to be in control of things we're not supposed to be in control of. We say, I'd rather take matters into my own hands, thank you. And the Christian story is basically the struggle between who's going to be in control. Is it you or is it God? And when we come to worship, we're glad because we remember, oh yeah, oh yeah, you're in control. You are God, I'm yours, you are God. How does this look practically in our lives? Well, I thought I would just share with you a um, personal example of how this is playing out in my own life this year. This reality right here. Who's going to be in control? 2018 has been a pretty busy year for me. I was called to be senior pastor after being associate pastor for seven years. And in the same year, God called out three out of the four pastors. And I basically had a choice to make this fall because my responsibility list more than tripled, you see. And over the last seven years as associate pastor, I was able to maintain the myth that I was in control of all my responsibilities, not just in charge of them, but in control of them. And then this fall, when my responsibility list more than tripled, I had a choice to make. I can either try to maintain that myth I'm in control now of at least three times what I was in control of. Or I could say, you know what? I'm in charge of more things now, but I'm not actually the God of those things. I'm not in control of them. I steward them. I'm in charge of them. I'm working harder than I ever have in my life. But guess what? I don't worry about them. It's weird to even hear myself say that because we've so equated worry with being in charge of something. Like if somebody says, hey, will you do this thing for me? Don't worry about it. What we mean is don't do it. We can hardly even imagine doing something without worrying about it. Somebody asked me recently in the copy room, they said, and a lot of you have been doing this recently. You know, you know what's going on in my life and you come to me with these very troubled eyes and you're like, how are you doing? <laughs> and I said to the person in the copy room, I said, you know what? I actually sleep better as senior pastor than I ever did as associate pastor. And I think it's because I had this breakthrough this fall where I realized my responsibility list is way too big for me to go on believing the myth that I'm the God of those things. Here's a very freeing thought. There's a God of this church, and it's not me. (laughs) Yes, I can sleep better at night. All the things I'm in charge of, I'm not actually in control of. Do you see the difference there? Some of the staff have reflected to me this fall. They said, man, Nathan, you're micromanaging me a lot less than you used to. (laughs) Thank you for laughing with me about that. It makes me cringe about how I've been behaving the last few years. I think about the time when Jesus was in the house of Mary and Martha. Do you remember this story? 
Where's Mary in the story? She's right at Jesus' feet. She's just worshiping him. She's drinking it in. She knows who God is. Jesus is in the room. And Mary is just worshiping him. What's Martha doing? Busy, 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 busy. She thinks she's in control. And Jesus very lovingly says to her, and I think he says to all of us, he says, Martha, Martha, you are worried and anxious about many things. But Mary has chosen the better portion. Could you put your name in that? You are worried and anxious about many things. It might be because you've forgotten what it says right here, that the Lord, he is God. Whatever situations you have out there, there's a God of that situation, and you're not him. You might have to steward it. You might have to work hard on it. What do you have in your life right now that you need to take out of your human grip and release it into the more able hand of God? I'm working on that this year. And it's freeing. It's awesome. Lord, lead us to think of those things where we need to relinquish our sense of control. Forgive us, God, for forgetting that you are God. We release them into your hands. This is all we remember when we come into worship, which is why we're so thankful. It goes right to verse 4 after this amazing reminder. In verse 4 it says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name. When we come to worship, we say, I'm so glad you're God and I'm not. Thank you, God. So the question maybe on our hearts is, why don't we do that more often? Why don't we do that seven days a week? Why don't we do it with all of our situations, all the things we're in charge of? Why don't we say, God, you're in control. I'm in charge, but you're in control. Why don't we do this? Why is the posture of our heart to grip things in our human grip? I think it's because we have trust issues as a people, don't we? Because if we really trusted that God is good, we would say, you take it. You take it. Well, the psalmist, I think, anticipates this, this very thing, this trust issue that we have, because look with me at verse 5. For the Lord is good. Think about that when you're trying to hold on to something that you think you need to be in control. You think you're going to do a better job of being God? The Lord is good. Good. In other words, he can be trusted. Place it in his more able hand because he's good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. I was thinking about that a lot this week. His faithfulness to all generations. You know, you're going to go in and see the history day in Emmaus Hall in a few minutes. It's easy for us to look back on all the generations previous and say, look at how faithful God was. And then for some reason, we turn to the generations younger than us and we get really cynical. I hear this all the time. We turn on cable news, we look out in culture, maybe we have young people in our lives and we're like, oh, Generation X, they're so fill in the blank. Millennials are so Generation Y, ugh. And we're so cynical about these generations. Look at all the faithfulness before us and look at younger than us. Why does that happen? Let's look again at those generations through God's eyes. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Look again at the millennials, folks. Guess what? God is faithful to them. God won't stop loving them. 
Generation Y, God is faithful to them. When babies cry in the sanctuary, sometimes I hear this comments from people, Pastor, what are you going to do about the distractions, you know, the crying babies in the sanctuary? I'm like, I love that sound because it means we have life in here. We have generations in here. On this campus today, we're going to have dozens of babies and children and young people and confirmation students. And God is faithful to all of them. In just a few minutes, we're going to have communion and our kids, church kids, are going to come streaming back in here. Heads up, parents. Your kids are going to come back right before communion. And this is beautiful because they're going to come to the table. And what better picture is there than than the table of God's grace to remind us? That God is faithful to all generations. Why are we cynical about young generations? God is faithful to them. You know, the the Louis Armstrong song actually lands on this as well. In the last verse, go ahead, put it up there. Let's just sing this with with Louis, won't we? (laughs) I hear babies crying. I watch them grow. They'll learn much more than I'll ever know. And I think to myself, what a wonderful world. I want to view children the way Louis Armstrong views them and the way Psalm 100 views them. Because God is faithful to them. When I come back into his sanctuary, when I worship with you all, my heart leaps like it did in the ninth grade at the University of Michigan football stadium. Because I consider the thing that's praiseworthy. Do you realize we have the greatest accomplishment in history written on this wall right here? Our natural response is not a step one, step two, step three. I don't want to teach you how to worship. I want to just say, behold the victory that has been won for us. Make a joyful noise to the Lord all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us. We are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him. Bless his name for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. And all God's people said, amen.